you would please take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 5, as we continue to read the wisdom imparted by the Koheleth, the philosopher, the pundit, the teacher, the king over Jerusalem as he identifies himself in the text. And as he shares with us in different voices, as he shares with us through different perspectives about life under the sun, I've been encouraged in my discussions with many of you over the last uh, couple of months in interacting on our study on Ecclesiastes. And I've heard time and time again people say, well, it's almost as if you are, you are talking directly to me. Well, that's because of the writer. He is talking about life under the sun, and if you don't know anything else, you know what that's all about. You know the pitfalls, you know the the celebrations, you know the realities, you know the challenges. And of course, as he talks about walking day by day and living out his life, there's much, much that we can learn. In our study, we've taken uh, the advice and counsel of Sinclair Ferguson, who looks at the book of Ecclesiastes not as a unified whole, but as a writer who is uh, writing from several different perspectives. At some time, he writes as as a cynic or pessimist. There's nothing meaningful under the sun. And almost uh, slowly and sometimes immediately, he changes into something entirely different. And he kind of switches his gears and plays the role of the hedonist and and basically says, well, listen… If nothing matters, I'm going to live life on my terms. I don't care what anyone thinks, and I don't care what anyone says. I'm going to grab all the gusto that I can. And, and yet then, in very lucid moments, he speaks to us an apology, as an apologist, and he says, now let me tell you what I figured out. Now remember, this Koheleth, this, this, this teacher, Solomon, has spent a long time over the course of his life contemplating the real meaning of life, answering two of the biggest questions that we are faced with. Who am I? And where am I going? And as he wrestles through that from these various different perspectives, he, he kind of lets it play out in front of us, and then he wraps it up at the end of the book in a couple of short verses and says, here's what I've learned And as he shares that with us, we reflect back from those verses on the rest of the text, and that helps us sort out what he's talking about. It helps us to see what he's seeing, the perspective in which he's writing. But you have to pay close attention because he kind of switches those roles periodically through the book. And in one of these texts that he kind of changes his perspective is Ecclesiastes chapter 5. I want to take you back to chapter 4 and then get into chapter 5, and I'll tell you right now, I'm going to do a little meddling today. Not because I necessarily want to, but if you're going to lead, you can't just tell people what they want to hear. You have to tell them what they need to hear. The writer of Ecclesiastes kind of wraps up a sentiment in chapter 4 and switches to a different kind of sentiment in chapter 5, and it's almost as if he's saying, if you think this is bad, that is just as bad. And he kind of sets them up against each other, and he calls us to something greater. In many ways, he's speaking in chapter 5 as an apologist, and he's saying, these are the things that matter as he reflects upon 
the things that he's written. When we take a look at what is happening in chapter 4, he's talking about, again, oppression. And he's talking about this power imbalance, and he talks about those who are victimized in life. And, and as he goes through that process of, of, of wrestling with right and wrong, and seemingly the wrong that uh, overcomes right more often than not, he, he comes to some dreadful conclusions as a cynic, a cynic, if you would, and saying, listen, the dead are, are more better off than I am because they're done with this nonsense. And then he says, better if you weren't born. Does it does really mean that? Remember, as he's writing as someone trying to figure out life under the sun, there's a passion in the words that he writes and a truth, a clarity that somehow escapes us oftentimes when we read the book of Ecclesiastes. And he calls us then, and as apologists, uh, just to enjoy life. Better is a handful of quietness to two hands full of toil and striving after the wind. Today is today. Enjoy it for its benefits. Stop, stop chasing after things that you'll never have. Then he says in verse 7 of chapter 4, again, I saw vanity under the sun, one person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there is no toil to all, and his eyes are never satisfied. He never asked the question, what am I doing? For whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? What an unhappy business. It's like I'm running in this rat race, and I don't know where the finish line is, and even if I find it, there's nobody else to share it with. What a mess. What an unhappy business, this life under the sun. We see him living like many people in our culture live today, alienated, isolated, and all alone. Nobody to share life with, nobody to do life with, nobody to bounce things off of. And he's lamenting that in the context of, of verse 7 here. He's saying, I am, I'm rushing to achieve all of this, and I have no one to share it with. I have no one walking on this journey with me. This is vanity. It's like chasing after the wind and an unhappy business. You look around in our world today for all the glorious promises of the politicians, and let me tell you something. We live in a world of alienation, isolation, and loneliness. I don't care how many Facebook friends you have. What a joke that is. We're a lonely bunch. We're connected by a screen. We never spend much time with flesh and blood, and we certainly don't talk about the realities of life, our disappointments, and our challenges. And in order to, to wrestle through this, he says, I, I have to tell you the truth. There's some things that I've, that I've learned about all of this. And, and as he moves away from his alienation and isolation and loneliness, he, he tells us or, or begins to expound upon this, this importance of community. He's saying, listen, it's not a good thing to be alone. It's not a good thing to do this all by yourself. And, and he goes almost into a proverbial kind of writing style where he gives us little proverbs about community and about relationships and about intimacy and about things that really matter in life. Reminded by Ian Provan in his commentary on Ecclesiastes, where he writes, the world is therefore a miserable place for many people who live without anyone to comfort them with a real prospect of change in their circumstances. That's where the Koheleth is in verse 7. 
What's the point of all of this? There's nobody around. I'm in this all alone, and I've amassed all of this wealth, but what is the point? What a miserable place for sure. Again, in a lucid moment, he says, you know what? We were not designed for this. We were designed for community, for meaningful relationships. And as he enters into this proverbial stage of his writing in verse 9, two are better than one. If one falls, the other lift up his fellow. Woe to him who is alone. And again, if two lie together, they can keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. But a threefold cord is not quickly broken. We, we need each other. There's a reason that we've been designed for relationship. And the absence of that relationship makes it an unhappy business to live under the sun. And now he's going to transition into worship. And again, I believe keep this proverbial notion about community alive as he goes into worship, but he's going to look at it no longer from a horizontal perspective, but, but a vertical perspective. And, and as he gets into some of this, he is going to… well, he's going to meddle a little bit in our lives. So let me just be honest with you. Before he does, I'm, I'm going to. So, last week we looked at verses 13 through 16. One person mentioned, well, you didn't, you didn't say a whole lot about verse 16. Well, there was a reason for that, kind of a depressing verse. And even more so, it is a difficult and challenging verse for anyone in leadership. And I want you to know that that includes pastors as well. He laments in verse 13 and onward this chronic lack of memory in our culture today. Remember what he says in chapter 1? There's no remembrance of former things. You're going to die and no one's going to remember you. Thanks for that. Have a good day now. Then he reminds us in chapter 2 of the same thing, and in chapter 3, and then in chapter 4 he says, you're all alone. You're all alone, and no one's going to remember who you are or what you've done. Better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice person who went from nothing to the throne, though in his own kingdom he had been poor. I saw all the living who move about under the sun, and along with that youth who was to stand in the king's place. As I, as I step back at the end of my life to look at this, we live in a culture, he says, that simply cries out, next, done with you, go on, you're over, we're not going to remember you, your life's gone, it's our turn now, next. What a miserable feeling that is. And some of you know what that is like. Boy, there's a lot of time and energy wasted on youth, isn't there? <laughs> Here's what he's saying. Here, here comes this young buck comes along, and he knows better than the old wise king, and I can't teach him anything, and, and I'm not learning anything, yet he's going to replace me, and no one's going to remember me. And then he says this, verse 16, there was no end, no end to all of the people. The needs of the people as king were great, and he led both the younger generation and the older generation, yet those who come later will not rejoice in him, meaning the king. Surely this is also vanity and striving after the wind. I've learned all of this stuff. I have been blessed with all of this wisdom. I've achieved all of this notoriety, and now I am standing 
in the presence of youth, and they're crying out, next, be off with you. We need different people and different ideas, and, and, and we're done with you. And this culture in Israel was moving away from the wise sage to the youth who would call all of the kind of shots. And, and he said, you know what? This is a tiresome thing indeed. I'm just going to share, if I could, a little bit, a little self-disclosure with you. It is a tiring thing indeed. We recently looked back on 20-plus years of ministry, that I have been your pastor, and you have been my people, the sheep of His pasture, but the people entrusted to me. I want to reflect upon those 20 years. This, this passage of Scripture really resonates with me. I remember as a young guy, and I don't know where the line is between young, young and old. Have you figured that out at all? You're, you're too young if there's no gray hair, but as soon as the gray hair comes, you're too old then. You have nothing relevant to say. There's just a small window of, of opportunity in there somehow, and that's what he's lamenting in the text here. I've experienced that in ministry. What have you done for us lately? Next, we're tired of you. We're bored of you. Let's take your Bibles, please. Get used to it. I'm not going anywhere. And I'm not going to change either. doesn't make you popular. Some of the greatest applause that I've received in the life of my ministry was that I was a person of the book. Take your Bibles. This is real. I believe every, every last line. The unfortunate thing is the Bible is an equal opportunity offender. And it was great as long as I was talking about the Bible and other people meddling in their lives. But as soon as I started to meddle in yours, oh boy, no longer was the king full of wisdom, and we didn't have time for that guy. I learned a lot about life and leadership. I've learned that sometimes there is isolation and loneliness, and sometimes there's no appreciation for what you've done or are doing, and and sometimes in decision-making, it's a lose-lose proposition because not everyone's going to be happy, and sometimes nobody's happy. So, what's the point of all of this? Well, we'll get to that in a minute because I think he addresses it in chapter 5, but, but nonetheless, so it's not just me speaking here. I came across this rather lengthy quote from Carl Truman. He's one of my favorite writers, just has a way with words, and it's a collection of some of his… Uh, editorials, if you would. The book is called Fools Rush In Where Monkeys Fear to Tread, kind of a catchy little title. And he talks about leadership. It's pretty succinct. He is from England, and he is lamenting on the other side of the pond how leaders fall out of favor, and in their decision-making, no one is ever entirely happy, and second-guessing has become a way of life. And then he continues in his editorial by saying, the same is true in America. Think of a significant leader in any sphere, and you will find someone who polarizes opinion, whether it's Franklin D. Roosevelt, General Douglas MacArthur, or Martin Luther King, Jr., any leader is polarizing. Any leader will bring a polarized opinion, and he asks himself the question, why? Because great leaders make tough 
choices, and in doing so, they commit themselves to courses of action that can bring praise, but also excoriation. Great leaders do not sit on a fence. They don't sit on the sidelines taking pot shots at those who have to make the decisions. They do not enjoy the luxury of always knowing what should be done, but never having to take the responsibility for doing it. You've heard me say that before, haven't haven't you? It's so easy making decisions when you own no responsibility for those decisions. Truman's lamenting that about our culture. Leaders understand that sometimes it's better to make a decision that proves to be wrong than to make no decision at all because the people have to be led. In short, he says it should be a matter of concern that we live in a world where the very values that seem increasingly to dominate our society, and he outlines those, extended adolescence, nobody grows up anymore, and the love of choice, I've got to keep my options open with the dislike of any responsibility for the choices made, are those that will erode the very qualities that make good leaders. And what are good leaders made of? Maturity and a willingness to make the hard decisions. Over the 40 years of my life in ministry, I have learned this the hard way. I had a choice I had to make. I could lament that. I could lament the culture. I could say, everything's changing. This is crazy. I can be that old guy on the porch. Bill reminds me of this sometimes, Bill Kolb. Get off my lawn, right? It's easy to become that person. But you can't be distracted by all of that. Still have a job to do. He's still the king. Still have a job to do. You're still the leader. And that means you're going to have to make decisions. And there's no option of not making a, a decision. But be sure, in this culture, whatever decision is made, there will be social commentary on it. Yes? No? Some tweet, some post, some Instagram, whatever they call that, someone's going to have something to say. And you can be looking all around and saying, what's the point of all of this? What a waste of my time. It's an unhappy business. Or... Or you can grow comfortable with the fact that this is your lot in life. This is what God has called you to do. So be faithful to do it. Because leadership is not a popularity contest. So the king says, you know what? Of all this people, everyone I'm leading, there are some who will not rejoice in me. And it got to him. You see, when you cut God out of the equation and life is measured by things under the sun, all you have to somehow verify your achievements are the opinions of people. Let me tell you something. That's a dead end. He didn't quite grasp that, but, but that's a dead end. Leadership is not for the faint of heart. When I stand up here, I'm not imparting some wisdom that I've gleaned by experience, although that's part and part of that. I'm taking you to the book. I'm taking you to the Word. I'm saying, here's what the Bible has to say. And I have to leave, whether you like it or not, whether you tweet about it or not, whether you applaud me or excoriate me, 
It's the book, and you have to be content with that. Now, let's set up what is taking place in chapter 5. As he wrestles with the emptiness of life under the sun, apart from God and relying on the people, that's a dead end. He turns his attention to worship. He turns his attention to the responsibility that all of us have when we come before the face of of God and, and worship collectively and individually. He is going to compare the emptiness of life under the sun doing his own thing with a meaningless kind of worship where we just go through the motions. We have a problem in Christianity of promising that Jesus will make your life perfect. He'll take away your problems. He'll heal all of your pains and all of your relationships. And if you just trust Him, everything's going to be great in your life. I, I don't know. Causes me to wonder, do I, do I know Him? Because that hasn't worked for me. How, how about it? Has, it? has it worked for you? It's not what He promises us. He's not promising us that everyone's going to love us. We're going to have no problems. We have this problem in Christianity of, of, of meaningless worship where we project a Savior who is not rescuing us from our sin, but rescuing us from, from our, our very lives. Solomon is saying, listen, I can run off to God and, and say, you've got to fix this now. I made a mess of it. But my heart's really not into that. I don't really mean that. And that's just as empty as doing things my way, making God a part of it, but only so far. We want Jesus. We just don't want His Lordship. I want Jesus more than anything. Leave me alone and let me work this out. I'm going to do life on my terms. Do you understand the perspective that he's writing in right now? And he's realizing that there's an empty component to worship, and there's a reason for that. And he begins to delve into it in the fifth chapter. Let's set the stage. Israel was in exile. They played fast and loose with the Word of God. In fact, they abused the Word of God. They abused the worship of God. They made it about them and their rules and their likes and their dislikes, and they were taken off into captivity. But it appears to me that Solomon is writing at a time, indeed he is the writer, where the temple now has been restored. Nehemiah went back and built the walls, and Ezra restored the temple. So worship is back into play, and maybe he's wrestling with, did we learn anything from that time of exile? where we paid the penalty for not taking His Word seriously and not taking His worship seriously. Did did we learn anything at that particular time? Deuteronomy chapter 10, we read, And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to but to fear the Lord your God and to walk in all of His ways and to love Him and to serve the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord which I am commanding you today for your good. Speaking of worship, as Moses is preparing the children to go into that promised land and the writer, Koheleth here, is lamenting the futility and emptiness of life on your own terms, but he's also starting to warn you. But God added to your equation doesn't fix anything. They're so contrary to American evangelicalism today, right? 
I can still live my life, take an hour and 10 minutes or 15 minutes, maybe even an hour and a half, and give it to God on the weekend and smooth sailing. He's going to take care of everything. That's not the gospel of Jesus Christ. Solomon's wrestling through that in his time and in his age, but the book is timeless, and we are wrestling with this in our time and our age, this, this mechanical worship that is, a, is a, an hypocrisy. So he says in verse 1, guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Be very careful when you approach the house of God. What is he talking about? This building? No, listen. He's talking about the temple in Jerusalem, representing the very presence of God for his people. Solomon is saying you just can't add God to your equation to make life no longer unhappy, but happy. You must pursue God with all of your heart, with all of your mind, with all of your soul. He doesn't come right out and say it, but he, he gives us the implications and the complications of, of just adding God on our terms. Guard your steps. Be very careful. Be very careful when you go to the house of God. He is warning against the rituals of worship, and here's where I'm going to meddle. And I have the same struggles that you have. Because not every Sunday morning am I raring to go. I know you don't have that issue, but I, but I do sometimes. I come in totally unprepared and frazzled because of the week. I don't understand the implications of calling out to God and being amongst His people. I don't understand the, the total implications of worship, and, and it's easy to just go through the motions. And some would say, well, it's better to go through the motions than not go at all. And there's only a little bit of truth in that. Solomon's saying, listen, when you come to worship, you just can't add God to the mess of your life already and expect Him to fix it. You must be very careful how you approach the Lord your God and come into the temple. Guard your steps. remember a couple of years back, probably more than a couple of time flies, they say, when you're having fun. We did a study of the holiness of God. Picture this. Isaiah is in the presence of God. God shows him his glory. The floor of the temple is quaking. The voice of the angels is thunder as holy holy, holy. And Isaiah is unraveling in the presence of God, and the camera pans to you, and you have your feet up on the seat and your cup of coffee. What's wrong with that picture? Someone's going to say, oh, now you're really getting after it. You're saying I shouldn't. I'm not saying anything. I'm asking you, have you guarded your steps when you came into the house? 
Or is this some meaningless ritual that you do to gain God's favor as long as He doesn't meddle in your life? I don't think we have even a little grasp of holiness today. Contemporary church, the worship starts with this big worship band and hoppity-hop kind of clap your hands and click your heels kind of music and gets everybody revved up. Is it really guarding your hearts? That emotional response isn't lasting, it's fleeting. Have we become too lax in our worship? It's not a question to you. It's a question to me. When I came in the door today at 6.30 a.m., was I getting ready for what God has called me to do? Or was it another Sunday to do what we always do on Sunday? See, I told you I was going to meddle a little bit. Pastor, you're a legalist. God doesn't say we shouldn't bring coffee into the worship center. I can't picture myself cross-legged sitting down next to Isaiah with a cup of coffee when he's becoming undone. I'm uh, sorry. I, I just can't. I can't get a grasp of that in my mind. It's not about the coffee. Have you prepared your heart? Have you guarded your… Do you know what you're doing here? We started with some somber songs purposefully. Do you know that that I turn over all my messages and work with a, a worship planning team, and we read the passage, and we, we pick the, the songs that, that fit the worship for that day. Why? Because all of this matters. We're, we're, we're carefully approaching all of this. Some of the things that we said, draw me close to you. Let me hear you. Speak to me. Solomon. As he writes about meaningless worship, first talks about the importance of reverence and worship and guarding our steps. And what do we do when we come to the house of God? Verse 1, we are drawing near to listen. And that's better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know what they are doing evil. we wrestle with this reality, the Proverbs tell us to ponder the path of our feet. Samuel tells us to obey is better than sacrifice. James tells us to be quick to hear and slow to speak and slow to anger. The writer of Ecclesiastes said, you have come to the house to draw near, and you draw near by listening. We are so full of ourselves. It's just like, yeah, yeah. You're here for a reason. And the God of the universe, through His Word, wishes to speak into your life. And maybe meddle a little bit. And Solomon said, Adding God to your own way of life never works. So ponder 
and guard your steps before you come into the house of God and be ready to listen. In a world of cheap rhetoric and contrived reality, we underappreciate silence. Silence is undervalued in the noisy, intrusive world that most of us inhabit, but perhaps it would behoove all of us to spend some time before the 9.30 hour and the on-air sign goes on to ask ourselves, what are we doing? Why am I here? What is the point of all of this? Because this is what I do on Sunday, or am I here to, to listen and to engage with the King? Again, I, I'm speaking to myself as much as I am with you. With you. For those of you who are taking offense, don't take it with me. We're in the presence of our King. We've come to worship the King, and I think a little unraveling would do us all a little bit of good every once in a while. What, what do you think? Guard your steps. Be careful of your attitude. Come desiring to listen and not to offer the sacrifice of fools. What is that? Singing songs and words that you don't mean. Doing things that don't matter and losing your focus. I'm reminded that when everything is coming apart like it is in the Kohelis life, the psalm writer made it very clear, be still and know that I am God. Remember the early portion of that text? The mountains are shaking and falling into the midst of the sea. Everything is sideways. Be still. I wonder what might happen if we took just a mere three minutes. I won't do this. But if we just took a mere three minutes and did nothing but listen. Well, we get about 20 seconds in, and you would think, well, three minutes must be up by now. How, how, how come Pastor's not doing something right now? We don't do silence well. But silence is a critically important trait when we come into the house of God if we're going to guard our steps. Maybe, just maybe, it's not about your voice when you come here on Sunday morning. It's about His voice. Just maybe. Remember, he's speaking from history. They were taken captive because they ignored the book, and now he's calling them back to the book, but he said, you just can't add that to your, your, your selfish kind of lifestyle. It's not some magical formula. Guard your steps before you go into the house of God, and make sure you're ready to listen. Do not be rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God, for God is in heaven, and you are on earth. If you want to underline in your Bible, underline that phrase, God is in heaven and you are on earth. <laughs> he is God, you're not. And when you come into the, to the house of God, you're coming for Him, not yourself. You're coming to offer your worship and your praise and your sacrifice and to listen. This does not mean in any sense, this is really important, it does not mean in any sense that God doesn't care about your life. 
and is reminding you that he is holy, 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 and you better guard your steps. Kind of like Isaiah, right? And I saw the Lord high and lifted up. Woe is me, for I am undone. I'm a man of unclean lips. You notice how he's talking about his words? <laughs> it's not why we come to the house of God. Holy, holy, holy. If you have time this afternoon, go back to the latter portions of the book of Job 42 in particular. When Job demands that God answer his questions, careful what you ask for. God did. And what did Job say? I had uttered things that I did not understand, things too wonderful for me. I, sp- I spoke out of turn. God, I'm, I'm sorry. Guard your steps and listen. Remember what he's communicating. You just can't add God to the formula of the life that you've made for yourself and use him as some kind of genie to make it all work out. You must give up that life that you've made for yourself and acknowledge the holiness of God and fear his word and live faithfully and according to that word because that's what he desires of you. To obey is better than sacrifice. And an hour and a half on a Sunday morning, God is not impressed. Thank you very much. That's hard to take, isn't it? Every time I leave on a Sunday, I ask myself, what's that all about? Did I guard my steps? Did I do what he called me to do? Was I faithful? Was I some blubbering fool that didn't even understand what I was trying to communicate, or did I get in the way of all that? And because I take it serious. I need to take it equally seriously before I get here and guard my steps before I enter into the house of God. You get the point then, don't you? Why? Because he's holy, holy, holy. That's the only answer. That's the only thing I'm going to give you. Holy, holy, holy. You want to debate about the coffee? We'll debate until until the the cows come home. Your grandmother used to say that, right? I don't even know what that means. But anyway, coffee doesn't seem that important anymore, does it? That's what Solomon's saying. God's not an add-on, thank you. And to add on God leaves you in the same place as I was without God, living my life under the sun. It's all empty, so be careful. Verse 2, let your words be few. Do not be rash with your mouth. Let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God, for God is in heaven and you are on earth. He talks about dreams. And certainly in the context of dreams, it is interpreted in a number of different ways. But I think what he's saying is don't be so wrapped up in the realities of day-to-day life, so encumbered by the cares of this world that you miss 
the opportunity to draw near and to listen. It's not about you. I believe that probably there is a lack of reverence and worship in our culture today because there's a lack of understanding of who God is. And that lack of understanding of who God is is because we don't know the book. So go home and read Isaiah 6 if you don't know what I'm talking about. Holy, holy, holy. How do I know about God? Through the Word of God. And that's why you're listening this morning. We need His revelation about who He is and what He is in order to reverence Him properly. But I'm not sure we have a grasp of that because I think we have forgotten who we are, and I think we have forgotten where we are at this point in time in the house of God to listen to the voice of God and be changed. You follow me? I learned this as a child in the Catholic Church. It was demanded. I shudder to think what my grandmother would have done if I took a cup of coffee into, into the Catholic Mass. First of all, I never would have done it because I knew the answer to that. That's, I, I, I knew what she would do. But there's a reverence that I gained and I gleaned through. through this, this, is, this is where we meet with God and we, we hear from God. They were wrong on a whole lot of other things. But I thank God for the reverence that I learned. As I learned the Scripture and as I began to understand what God expected of me, things changed in my worship, things changed where I worshiped, and, and I realized that, that I could be doing all the right things for all the wrong reasons, or I could guard my steps coming into the house of God, and I could listen. And what I would listen for is true truth, orthodoxy, but that true truth would matter in how I lived, not in that hour of service, but when I got out. It mattered. It meant something. And if I was truly listening, it would result in some kind of change uh, behaviorally and otherwise. That is what Solomon is getting to. We're taking this way too lightly. Those are not my words. And I have times, and as guilty as you, about being unprepared when I come into the house of God. And this isn't something that is solely for the young people today. There are a lot of gray hairs I use this term endearingly. Last year, I have gray hair as well, who, who do all of the right things, but they're not listening, and their heart is far from… Well, this is serious business. We don't do this because we're supposed to. We do this because He is holy, holy, holy. You, you see, what, see what the writer's trying to communicate? God is not an add-on. That's just as bad as me living my life under the sun with no consideration of what He wants. Just as bad, meaningless worship. When you vow a vow, when you make a promise, when you make a commitment to God, do not delay paying it, for He has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. For it's better that you should not vow than you should vow and not pay. You better keep your word. God keeps track of that kind of stuff. Let not your mouth lead you into sin. Doesn't that remind you of the book of James? The tongue is set on fire of hell. 
It is an unruly evil full of deadly poison, and sometimes even our prayers are poisonous because they're all about us. Guard your hearts when you come into the house of God. Don't make any rash promises. Don't make any rash vows. Be careful with your words. Be quick to listen and slow to speak, because whatever vow that you make, you will be held to. So he says in verse 6, when someone holds you to your vow, don't say to the messenger, well, that was a mistake. You misunderstood. I didn't really mean mean what what I said there. Why should God be angry at your voice and and destroy the work of your hands? Why would you come here in such a flippant kind of fashion and offer your meaningless worship and the sacrifice of fools and all of your language? Why would you go to all of that trouble knowing that God's going to hold you to account for that some, someday. I told you I'd be meddling a little bit. I have to wander back in my life. I bet you there were some times God was angry with my voice. How about you? I wasn't happy with my words. He didn't like my attitude when I came into the house of God, so I need to do better next time. And how does Solomon say to do that? Guard your steps before you go to the house of God, because He's holy, holy, holy. For when the dreams increase and words grow many, there's vanity. Then in a very lucid way, He says, but God is the one you must fear. Why? Because it's His house. And He's the one who's speaking. And He's the one who controls the destiny of your life. And He's the one that makes the rules. And He's the one you give an account to. And He is holy, holy, holy. Has God an add-on to your life? Kind of strolling casually whenever we get around. Bring a cup of coffee, maybe even a donut from time to time. Put our feet up on the seat in front of us, whisper the whole time, use our tablet to search the internet, and boring this stuff here. Holy, holy, holy. You want to get yourself out of a rut? Learn to fear God, to reverence His holiness to bask in His glory, to see His glory, to to know His plan, to live that plan, to, to listen to the Word, and to change. And that's how he ends the book. Can almost tie chapter 5, verse 7, with this concluding statement, the end of the matter. Let me, let me tell you the bottom line that Koheleth, the writer of Ecclesiastes, says. 
You've heard everything that I've wrestled with. Here's the bottom line. Fear God and keep His commandments because that's really what life's all about. It's not an add-on. It's not an add-on. And meaningless worship will come back to bite you, for God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or bad. Verse 1, chapter 5. So guard your steps when you come into the house of God. I don't know about you. Cutting, deep, glorious, to think that the God of the universe gives us His undivided attention when we call out His name, should bring a reverence and a respect and a silence that you've never known before. And if that's not the case, guard your steps. The consternation of some may be better that you don't come and offer the sacrifices than you come in some meaningless capacity and play the game. Holy. Holy, holy. Fear God and guard your steps, Father. Guilty is charged, every single one of us. Sometimes better than others. So cumbered by our own needs and our own wants and our own desires that sometimes we miss the opportunity to worship. Show us your glory. Through your word, give us a glimpse of your presence. Remind us that you are holy holy, holy, transcendent above and beyond, and yet so interested in our lives, and forgive us for the frivolity that worship has become today in so many places. God, forgive us. May we worship You in spirit and in truth. May may we fear You and keep Your commandments. May we guard our steps knowing that everything that we do will come into judgment, even our worship. Show us your glory, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you please